Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Exodus chapter 24. And uh, <clears throat> chapter 24 kind of stands alone. Uh, you know, we've been going through this, uh, through the book of Exodus. We get to this chapter. This is really a pivotal chapter, chapter 24. It's pivotal for the nation of Israel because it's, the ratification and the inauguration of God's covenant with Israel, uh, with his people. It occurs right here in chapter 24. This is the point where the nation of Israel is officially set apart as the people of God. And, you know, as we go through this chapter, of course, it's historical. We're reading that. But, you know, it also is, I believe, a picture. And I think the Holy Spirit's painting a picture of how our lives are set apart unto God. And so we'll be looking at that this morning and, and, and just some aspects of that that come out in this passage of scripture. So we'll go ahead and start with verse one of chapter 24. It says, now he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. Later on, the, the two sons of Aaron, he's got four sons. These are the two eldest sons, Nadab and Abihu. They're going to figure prominently into, uh, into a story that we'll be looking at here in the next few weeks. Uh, but so they're mentioned here as, as being ones that the Lord has called forward, as well as the 70 elders of Israel. We have no idea who they are or, or how they were chosen. Uh, do you recall back in, I forgot what chapter it is, maybe it was chapter 18 or 19, when, when uh, Jethro, uh, Moses' father-in-law, met him in the wilderness and saw Moses. And Moses was, he was judging the people. He was dealing with any kind of issues that were going on with about 2 million children of Israel. And uh, Jethro's watching him go, man, you're going to burn yourself out. You're, half the people aren't even going to get saw. You know, you're not going to be able to meet all their needs. He said, you should appoint uh, men that, you know, leaders and elders and have them come forward. Let them deal with all the, you know, the, what you might call trivial stuff or the, the more of the mundane type of things, the everyday type of things. If they're serious stuff, then you can deal with it. Uh, but that'll ease the burden for you, Moses, and it will also, uh, it'll allow everybody to get ministered to. And so it could be these are the 70 elders uh, that were called forward. It could also be, if you recall, when, when Jacob went down to Egypt, we're told that there were 70 persons in all in the family at that time. And uh, so maybe this is a representative number of, of all the children or all the, the people that went down to Egypt originally. Or it could just be, you know, six representatives from each tribe. Again, we don't really know who they are. Um, but what's interesting in these two verses is before the inauguration of the covenant, the people that are, he's calling forward, they could only worship God from afar. See, God said... Uh, to them, worship from afar. You know, it's interesting. You think about that. You and I, God doesn't tell you and I to worship him from afar, does he? God says in James uh, 4 verse 8, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. I remember when I rededicated my life to the Lord, that was my verse. I mean, it was just like, okay, Lord, I'm drawing near to you. You know, I repent of my sins and I, I drew near to the Lord and, and, I, and he was faithful to his promise. He drew near to me as well. So we're called to draw near. But you see, it's only possible to worship, from a, to worship God from afar if we attempt 
to approach God through the law. If we attempt to approach God through the law or through legalism, whatever, religion, whatever you want to call it, you can only get so far. You can't draw near to God through religion or through the law. Why? Because Hebrews 7.19 tells us, for the law made nothing perfect. It just reveals your and my unholiness. Hebrews 12, 14, you know, we serve a holy God and, and Hebrews 12, 14 tells us that without, holy, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So just going through the motions, religion or the law, whatever, we cannot approach God closely. We can, we can only worship from afar. It's only possible to draw near to God, to worship him closely through Jesus Christ. It's the only way for any of us. In fact, Ephesians 2.13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's why you and I can draw near even this morning. That's why we can boldly approach the throne of, throne of grace because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, Moses here is only allowed to approach God and you go, well, why him? Well, it has nothing to do with Moses, to be honest with you. It's God's grace. It's God's grace allowing Moses to approach. Plus, Moses is a type or a picture of a mediator between God and the people and the people of, and God. In fact, he's a picture of Jesus Christ as we look at him in Exodus. We continue here at verse 3. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. Now, if you didn't have any more of the book of Exodus, you go, wow, that's pretty awesome. Man, they're, they're, they're committed. They're, they're, they've made a promise. They're going to stick to it. But it doesn't take too long as we go through the book of Exodus. We find out that, that they, they don't keep their promise. I don't know about you or, or well, I know about me. I don't know about you. But have you ever made a promise to God and not kept it? You ever, ever done that? I'm not going to ask anyone to raise their hands, but, uh, you know, for example, Lord, I'm going to serve you with my whole heart the rest of my life. I, you've probably prayed something like that when you either rededicate your life to the Lord or you gave your heart to the Lord. I'm going to, I'm yours forever, you know, and then sometimes we fail. Or sometimes, you know, we've, maybe we've said, Lord, everything I have is yours. And then circumstances change. And then all of a sudden, it becomes a little harder to keep that commitment. Those promises that we make, all of a sudden now there's some, it's like, well, I wasn't thinking about that when I made that promise. You know what that reminds me of? I was studying this. is a guy by the name of Jephthah. He's in the book of Judges, chapter 11. You don't need to turn there because we're not going to really be digging into it. But I'm going to tell you a little bit about Jephthah. If you ever heard about him. The book of Judges is when after the children of Israel are in the land of Canaan and all the generation that, that saw God's miracles throughout the wilderness you know, crossing and, and all the things that he did and, and how God led him forth in battles and stuff under, the, under Joshua in Canaan, that whole generation had died. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Bible says there was another generation that rose up that didn't know all the things that the Lord had done. They hadn't experienced him in a personal way like the rest of the children of Israel did. And so at that point, there was no king in Israel. So everyone did whatever they thought was right. And so the people would start drifting away from the Lord. They'd get into idolatry. They'd, they'd start adopting the, the idolatry, the pagans around them. And God would punish them. God would allow their enemies to, to invade Israel. And, and they were just oppressed because of that. 
And then every once in a while, the people would finally come to their senses. They'd cry out to the Lord. They'd, they'd just say, Lord, have mercy on me. And God's merciful God. And then God would raise up a judge. And this judge would basically be a deliverer. And he would deliver the children of Israel from whoever was oppressing them at that time. And then for a while, he would rule the people during that time. That's why he was called a judge. And then he would die. And then it wouldn't take too long before people would fall back into idolatry again. Well, Jephthah was one of those judges in Judges chapter 11. Now, what's interesting about Jephthah, he was a son of a harlot. So he wasn't noble or anything. Uh, but the children of Israel were being oppressed by the Ammonites. And so they cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up this guy, this unlikely judge by the name of Jephthah. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord as he was before he went into battle with the Ammonites. It's, it's in Judges 11. But he says this, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Whatever comes out to meet me when I'm done with the battle, I'm dedicating that to you, Lord God. I'm going to offer it as a burnt offering. Well, the Lord did give uh, the children of Israel victory over the Ammonites. And so on his way back from the victory over the Ammonites, Jephthah's approaching his house, and the Bible tells us his only daughter ran out the door to meet, his, her, to meet her daddy, basically. I don't, we don't know how old she was. And Jephthah, just his heart just sank. Now I think about it, I go, why did he make a promise like that in the first place? But anyways, that's besides the point. But uh, but. You know, here he is. Now he's got a dilemma. The circumstances have changed. Well, I didn't think my daughter was going to come out the door, but she did. And the thing that's really cool about the story of Jephthah is that he carried out his vow. You might say, you mean he burned her on an offering, you know, as a burnt offering? Well, the Bible tells us that she knew no man. And so what I think what happened was she was dedicated to the Lord, similar to something like what the Catholic Church does with nuns, where they remain celibate the rest of their lives. The, her daughter, his daughter, was dedicated to the Lord. And uh, think about that. That obviously impacted the daughter. Um, but also Jephthah himself, because we're told that that was his only daughter. And in a patriotic, patriarchal society, you know, you, you want children. You want posterity. And so, I mean, I even want posterity. I don't live in a patriarchal society. But, but in that society, that was a, that was a major blow. And so... That would have been something where Jephthah, you, you and I could probably say, well, I mean, we give him, cut him some slack, you know, we can give him some break. You know what? Jephthah kept his promise. He kept his promise. And if we get to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, he's mentioned in chapter 11, which is the Hebrew uh, hall, uh, faith hall of fame. He's mentioned there. And uh, uh, he kept his promise at very great cost. That, that, that's faithfulness. That's something that's kind of rare in these days. And so the children of Israel, they said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. What strikes me as interesting is God doesn't like say, well, hang on, you're, you're not going to do it. In about a chapter or two chapters later, I know what's going to happen, you know, but he doesn't do that. God allows the children of Israel to make this promise, knowing full well that in a short matter of time, they're going to break their promise. That just floors me. See, the reality is it's impossible for sinful man to keep the law. It's impossible. So we get to verse 4. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Right away, I jump to look at that and go, well, why did Moses send the young men of the children of Israel to offer these burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord? And the reason why is because there was no Aaronic priesthood established at this point. It hadn't happened yet. Because that ha can only happen after they, are, they ratify the, con the, the covenant and after the covenant is inaugurated, which hasn't occurred yet. The priesthood hasn't been established yet. But why did God choose, or excuse me, why did Moses choose the young men? It's kind of interesting. And I don't know the answer to it. It could have been because they were chaste. It could have been because they were about as close to innocence as a person can get, you know, as a human can get uh, before the priesthood was established. Maybe that was what Moses was thinking. Or maybe Moses realized, hey, in not too many years, this is going to be the next generation of men that are going to be, they'll be the future elders of Israel. And I want to, I want to impact them. I want to get them involved in ministry and have them, you know, that could have been uh, what he was thinking. Again, we're, we're not really told. But what that speaks to me is just the importance of youth ministry. You know, we have the kids come up here. It's not just a break and kind of corral them and then send them off. It, we really are, hopefully you're joining me in prayer for these children. It's such an important thing, uh, youth ministry. Some people look at it and go, well, you know, we're just, we send the kids back there and we have somebody who can babysit them during the, during the service while the adults are in here. And that's not the deal at all. It might be in other people's churches or maybe in other people's attitudes, but not here. Here we know that we're building a firm foundation that's going to last. Let me ask a question. You, you can actually raise your hands for this, but how many of you came to faith either as a child or sometime before your adulthood as a youth? How many of you? Or maybe you rededicated your life at that point or something. Oh, keep your hands up for a moment. Okay, look around the room. Look at the, look at the percentage of those that came to faith as children there's fruit we're the fruit of that of, of children's ministries of of somebody sharing the gospel with us of, of taking time with us um you want a fruitful ministry you know sometimes we do ministry and it's like a, you, you never see any fruit from it it's like i don't know if i'm having an impact at all you want to you want a fruitful ministry get involved in children's ministry seriously you'll see fruit maybe you won't see it in this lifetime but you'll definitely see it at some point now, this is a more rhetorical question, but how many of you remember your teachers from grade school? I was thinking about that. Okay, awesome. I see some hands. So, kindergarten. I went to about three different elementary schools in, in between first and or kindergarten and sixth grade. So, kindergarten was Mrs. Ring. She said, uh, it's, like the ring on your ring, it's like the ring on your finger. I remember her telling me that first day. Mrs. Ring. First grade was Mrs. Espinoza. Second grade was Mrs. Duckworth. Third grade was Mrs. Callahan. Fourth grade was Mrs. Hopkins. She didn't like me. Uh, fifth grade uh, was Misty Bolt. And sixth grade was Mrs. Ott. And I still remember them vividly. They had an impact on my life. And, you know, I could actually tell you, I could go back and list Sunday school teachers, too. I, I, didn't, do, I didn't think back, but I could think of some of them. I remember one had really bad breath. But anyways, <laughs> I just remember that. <laughs> I'm not naming names, but anyways. <laughs> but, but seriously, they had an impact on me. 
So, you know, we think of children's ministry, you know, as like, ah, it's just, we're just kind of filling time or we're taking care of the kids, kind of corralling them. You're, you're having an impact on them. So uh, I just want to uh, just tell you, man, if you want to get involved in children's ministry, again, we have a, a, a need here. Wednesday nights, we're seeing a growing need for children's ministry, people to be involved with that. So if you want to have an impact on a child's life, you want to see fruit from ministry, I want to, I want to encourage you, get involved. Get involved in children. There's my plugs. You know, that fit in perfectly where we're at. <laughs> All, right. All right, verse 6. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. So all the words that the Lord had spoken with Moses, because Moses has been up on the mountain a few times now, all that the Lord had told Moses on the mountain, Moses evidently recorded it, and then uh, he now reads the entire, what, all the stuff that he had gleaned from the Lord, all the things that he had heard from the Lord, he's reading it now in the hearing of the people. Why? Because the people need to fully understand what they're committing to. They need to understand what God is requiring or what God is expecting of them. And for you and I, in our relationship, when, when we enter into that covenant relationship with the Lord, we need to first hear the word of the Lord to understand what we're doing. Um, we need to understand who God is, first of all. God's a holy God. God's a merciful God. God's a faithful God. We under, need to understand who I am. I am not holy. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. We need to understand that. And we need to understand what my relation, what our relationship to God is. I need a savior. Romans 10, 14 and 15 says this. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written... How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And so the children of Israel, Moses is reading all this law to the children of Israel, all the things that the Lord had told them. And the people's response, they say, all that the Lord has said, and they've heard it all now, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. So this is a key point. It's only here and now that the covenant is ratified by the people, on the people's end of it. They're verbally agreeing to this covenant relationship with God. But you see, a verbal agreement is not enough for a covenant with God. A sacrifice has to take place. And so they sacrifice these, uh, these, these oxen here. So an animal is sacrificed. Moses takes half the blood, sprinkles it on the altar. The other half he takes and he sprinkles it on the people. Now the book of Hebrews goes into, kind of talks about it. And Hebrews 9 verses 18 through 20 says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. And you go, well, why blood? 
Why, why did he have to do that? Why sprinkle blood? What's the significance of blood? Well, the reason why is because Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Blood has to be shed for sin, as a, as a price for sin. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. See, a verbal recognition is not enough. Blood has to be shed for sin. And so the blood, God says, I'm, uh, the blood is going to make atonement. What does atonement mean? Well, it's the Hebrew word kafar, and it means to cover. At its most basic level, the word conveys the notion of covering, but not in the sense of merely concealing. Rather, it suggests the imposing of something to change its appearance or nature. Persons made reconciliation with God for their sins by imposing something that would appease the offended party, in this case the Lord, and cover the sinners with righteousness. So the blood of an acceptable sacrifice, what it did is it purged sins and it provided that forgiveness. Hebrews 9.22 tells us, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. That word remission is a Greek word, aphesis, and it means forgiveness or pardon of sins, letting them go as if they had never been uh, committed. So blood is necessary to enter into a covenant relationship with God. And so with the sprinkling of the blood, now the covenant is inaugurated. It was ratified by the people, but now it's inaugurated by God. Now Israel at this point in this chapter is forever now officially set apart unto God. He's, they're set apart as the people of God. By the way, this sprinkling of the people will never be repeated again in the Old Testament. This is a one-time deal. From now on, Israel is God's chosen people. And it doesn't take too long in the book of Exodus to realize that their faithfulness to that covenant is going to wax and it's going to wane. There's going to be good times, there's going to be bad times. And that's going to be the history of the nation of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. They're unfaithful, but God remains faithful. Praise the Lord, God remains faithful. I think we see an important aspect of our salvation under the new covenant here as well the fact that it was never repeated. Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 12 says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of, bull, of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. See, the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified once on the cross. He's not crucified over and over and over again as some religions, you know, in their, in their, you know, well, I'll just say it, during the Mass, the Catholic Mass, you know, Christ is crucified over and over. No, no, no. He was crucified once and for all. It's never to be repeated. And likewise, when you and I come to faith in Christ Jesus, you're never born again again. It's just once you're born again. Now, you may walk away from your relationship with the Lord. You may, you may backslide and you may need to repent and come back to the Lord. That happened in my life. I had to rededicate my life, recommit myself to the Lord. That, that happens. 
But you, you're never born again again. You're never like resaved. <laughs> it's once it's happened, once you've done made that commitment, it's God's faithful. I'm so thankful that God was faithful to the nation of Israel. You know, think about the state of Israel today. You know, we actually have a nation state of Israel. How many thousands of years did they not exist as a nation? And now they are a nation in these last days. And I am so excited about that. You might say, well, what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. If God is faithful to his covenant that he made that we're reading right now, if he's faithful to his covenant to the children of Israel, how many thousands of years ago? And now we see them once again as the nation state of Israel. That encourages me because that means God's going to be faithful to me. That means all his promises to me are yes in Jesus Christ. Well, let's move on here. Verse 9. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they ate God. Excuse me. <laughs> they didn't eat God. So they saw God. <laughs> That's, so they saw God and they ate and drank. In what way did they see God? That, that's a, that really raises a very interesting question. Well, I don't believe that they saw his physical form. Because Exodus 33, 20, the Lord God even tells Moses, Moses, I want to see your glory. And, and Moses, or Lord says to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. In John 1.18, we're told no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father has declared him. So no man at any time has ever seen, physically seen God and, and lived. So did they see God? Well, here's what I think. I think they saw, they had a, a, a vision, a revelation of God. And it's very similar if you read about the, you know, the, uh, the, the, the stone, sapphire stone. In fact, in my verse before, or the screen before I had a sapphire stone. Don't know if that's the sapphire uh, that is being described here in the Bible, but you look at that beautiful blue color. Um, but it's interesting because you can compare what they saw with what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 13. And you can also see, look and go into Ezekiel. Ezekiel saw a revelation very much similar to that in Ezekiel 1, verses 1 through 28. So I believe that they had a revelation of, of, of God. They, saw, they didn't see God physically, but they saw his glory. It says, but on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. Nobles. You know, the word nobles means select. And I don't think it's because they were like of like a special pedigree. You know, they came from the good side, the right side of the tracks or whatever like that. Um, I think it's, they were noble because of the sacrifice. They were set apart because of that. And that's because of that they were not struck down and killed. So it says they saw God and they ate and drank. You recall earlier, they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the peace offerings, I think this is what it's referring to. In a peace offering, what you did was you offered your, your sacrificial animal and, and part of it 
was offered to the Lord and the other part you actually partook. The person that was offering would partake of the peace offering. A portion was kept back uh, for the person making the sacrifice. And what it was a picture of is that fellowship that we have with God once sacrifice has been made. And it can only occur after sacrifice has been made. In fact, it was not until the sprinkling of the blood of the covenant that this could take place. You know, we're rapidly approaching Christmas, right? And, and uh, my wife, she loves Christmas. If you go to our house, it's decorated. She does a wonderful job decorating for Christmas. She does a lot of the decorations here too, by the way. Um, but one of the things that she loves is watching Christmas movies. So last night we watched a movie. I think we watched every Hallmark movie there is out there on Christmas. And you know, they're fun. They're good. I, I enjoy them too. I'm not that much into them, but I still, I watch them. But you know what's interesting? You, ever, you know, a lot of times they'll—not a lot of times, but quite frequently in in the in the movies—and if you've gone to a Christmas play, they'll refer back to when the angels appeared to the shepherds, right, as they were guarding their sheep out in Bethlehem, the hillside of Bethlehem, at night. And uh, this verse, Luke two verse fourteen, is usually quoted where the angels say, "Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men." And, you know, a lot of times in the movies, you know, someone will say that. And it's just oh, just a feel-good feeling, you know. It's like oh, peace on the earth, you know. Peace, peace, you know. Um, and it's, it's kind of a nebulous term when you think about what, what, what are the angels actually trying to tell us? Peace on earth. It just means everybody's going to be feel good and have fuzzy good feelings and watch Hallmark movies. No, it's not. It's talking about peace with God. See, Colossians 1.21 tells you and I, uh, you and you who were once uh, were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. See, because of our sinful nature, we were at odds with God. We were enemies of God. But we've been reconciled by Christ's sacrifice. We've been reconciled to a holy God. And so in Romans 5 verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what the peace offerings are all picturing, is that peace with God through the blood of a sacrifice. In our case, it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now we now have peace with God. Or before we couldn't have. It was impossible for us. Communion for the believer, that symbolizes that fellowship that we have with God through Christ's sacrifice for our sin. And you know, you cannot enjoy communion out of sequence. You only go, what are you, what are you talking about? I remember years ago, uh, my wife's family wasn't saved, and I remember her brother came out from Louisiana, New Orleans, to visit us, and we brought him to church, and they had, it was Communion Sunday, and he started going up to do communion. I said, I said, wait, do you have a relationship with the Lord? He goes, well, I do it all the time. Well, you know, okay. So he went up and, and partook of communion, and, and he didn't have a relationship with the Lord, as far as I know, anyways. I don't think he still does. Um, and, you know, but many people have done that, right? And I'm sure, you know, even in a church our size, when we've had communion, I've, I'm sure there have been people that don't have a relationship, that don't have that peace with God. They've come forward and partook in that communion. What does it do for them? Nothing. In fact, it won't even fill you up. It's a little cracker and a little cup of juice. <laughs> it won't do anything for you if you haven't first made peace with God through Jesus Christ, if you haven't first uh, entered into that new covenant. It's impossible to. In fact, according to 1 Corinthians 11, it can even be detrimental to a person. They can eat and drink judgment unto themselves. 
So the children of Israel here, though, these, these 70 elders and these youth and, and, and Nahab and Abihu, and them, they have, they're having this fellowship meal with the Lord God, and they're seeing the glory of the Lord. Um, and you can just imagine how glorious that would have been. I remember when we went through, Ex, or through Ezekiel and reading that vision that Ezekiel said, man, I would love to see something like that. Well, guess what? We are going to see something like that in the very near future, I believe. As glorious as that must have been, it's only a picture what you and I are going to physically enjoy in heaven. And it's described in Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. It says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord our God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. You and I, we're going to enjoy that we're going to experience what they just had a foretaste of. We're going to experience in its full capacity, in, in, in complete fullness, one day coming soon as the bride of Christ. Verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you the tablets of stone and the law and the commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. Then Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Verse 17, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So picture this, the children of Israel at the bottom of the mountain, right? They couldn't approach the mountain because if anyone did, they would die. So, so they're down at the bottom of the mountain. They earlier heard the Lord speaking, the, the noise, the trumpet smoke and everything. And they said, it scared them. And they said, Moses... Let God talk to you. You can share it to us. We don't want to hear from him directly. You know, you be our go-between. And, and that's what Moses did. Um, but so if you picture this, Moses has gone up into the mountain. And they're sitting there at the bottom of the mountain. And they see all the, the presence, which, you know, the glory of the Lord there on the top of the mountain. And it caused fear. It says they looked at it. All it looked like was a consuming fire. Well, Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. He is a consuming fire. And we should have reverence for God and a godly fear of God. But it's a good fear. It's not a fear that God's going to squash me at any moment. That he's going to kill me. 
It's a good fear. It's a good response. You know, my father, he was, he was, he was a very stern, uh, very loving. He never abused us kids. At least I was youngest, so I didn't get abused. But, you know, you know he, he was, he was uh, I remember he got pretty hard on my older brothers, but they deserved it. I didn't. <laughs> no, just, I'm just kidding. No, but my dad was very, I mean, you didn't want to cross my dad. But, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a godly fear that I had. Of him, I, rever- I revered him, but it wasn't like uh, like I was, you know. And some of you, I'm, unfortunately, you have had that kind of experience. But I, I never like cowered, like oh, he's going to hurt me, or I never had that fear. But I had a fear that you know, I don't want to cross my dad. I don't want to. I don't want to tick him off, you know. And, and so that's the fear that you and I have, hopefully, of the Lord God. It's not a fear that He's going to consume us and wipe us out. But you see, those who are on the outside, unbelievers. They look at your life and they look at my life and they go, oh man, he's, he's going to get consumed. Because that's what they think of a relationship with God is. He's going to take away all my joy, everything. I'm, I'm going to go and I'm, I'm going to be, a, you know, a do nothing and go off into somewhere and, you know, I'm never going to have any fun anymore and all that stuff. And they look, at a, they look at a believer's life and they go, man, what a waste. I had a friend that when I was first started this job at back in California at this company, I just got out of the Coast Guard and, and uh, I was walking with the Lord and everything. And I made this friend, this guy be, wanted to become friends with me. And so we were co-workers and really friendly guy, always talking to me, always wanting to get together after work and everything. And until the day he found out I was a born again believer in Jesus Christ. At that point, he said, you're one of them. And every time I saw him after that, he would just look at me and go, it's like, whatever, you know. Um, but people look at us that way. The concept of surrendering your life to a, a consuming fire, to our God who's a consuming fire, to them, it's like they don't have anything to do with it. For you, it's like, man, I, Lord, take my life. I want, I want it all to be surrendered to you. I don't want to be in control of my life. To the world, it's a bad thing. In fact, Later on in Exodus chapter 32, which we won't get to this morning, obviously, but Moses goes up into the mountain. And I'm going to just read this out of verse 1 of chapter 32. It says, Now when the people saw that, God, uh, that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. In other words, for all we know, he could have been consumed by God. That's the way the world looks at you and I when we surrender our lives to the Lord, especially if they know what you were like before. It's like, I can't believe they're doing that. Verse 18, so Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. We're told in Exodus 34, verse 28, that he neither neither ate bread nor drank water. So he fasted that entire time. Forty days is very significant in the Bible. I was, tr- I was just going through, I just typed in on my search tool, 40 days. And I started doing a search. And this is what I came up with. Noah's flood, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. The spies that were sent into the land of Canaan, the 12 spies, they were in the land of Canaan for 40 days. Goliath, remember the giant Goliath and David? Goliath taunted the children of Israel for 40 days. Elijah, the prophet, traveled from the wilderness of Beersheba to Horeb in the strength of the food and drink that the angel of the Lord gave him for 40 days. Ezekiel, 
had to lay on his right side to bear the iniquity of the house of Judah for 40 days. Jonah's message to Nineveh, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jesus, of course, we know, was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. And after his resurrection, before his ascension, he was on earth for 40 days in his resurrected body. Very interesting. I don't know what to make of it, <laughs> but it would be a good Bible study, actually. You dig in there and go, well, I wonder, you know, if we can, I'm sure you could find something in there. But very significant in the Bible. That's, I just want to share that with you. But <laughs> So, as we move forward here in Exodus, you know, Moses is going to receive the tablets, the Ten Commandments written on, engraved on them from, from the finger of God himself. And he's also, as we go into the next couple of chapters, he's going to be uh, receiving um, the, uh, the description of the instructions for how to build a tabernacle, how to build all the furniture of the tabernacle, um, uh, description of the priest's garments, because Aaron and, and, the, and his sons are going to be inaugurated as priests here coming up very soon, now that the covenant's been inaugurated. And all the service of the tabernacle, all the offerings, all the sacrifices, all that stuff is now going to be detailed for the children of Israel. Going to be, the Lord's going to spend that 40 days talking to Moses about all that stuff. But it only happens after this chapter after they've been inaugurated as the people of God. You see, that inauguration was the basis for everything else. When they, when they entered into that commitment, that covenant with, with God, that old covenant, the Old Testament covenant, from that point on, that's the basis for everything else that we're going to study. In fact, it's interesting. Some of you might, you know, read through later on in Exodus and go, ah, I don't know, this seems kind of boring. You know, you're reading about the, 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 the fabric for the temple or for the tabernacle. We're reading all these things and stuff. Each thing in there is significant. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews that the, all the priest's garments, the furnishings of the tabernacle, everything is a picture, it's a copy and a shadow of what's in heaven. So there's significance to all of it. And I, I can't wait to get through, uh, go through, and, and we'll, we'll study some of that together as we continue in chapter, uh, in the book of Exodus. But this chapter, like I said, it's pivotal because this forms the basis for all that other information. And for you and I, as we come to faith in Christ Jesus, that's the foundation, the basis for everything else in our lives. You can't get it out of sequence. You have to, you can't put the cart before the horse. The first thing is entering into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Everything else falls into place afterwards. And some people, they try to go through the religious motions with never having a relationship with God, and it doesn't do anything for them. I uh, had an opportunity a few years back. I, I guess I can't, I was trying to figure out how many years back, but maybe five years or so, something like that. There was a guy that, that, uh, that I had become acquainted with, and he was having marital issues. And he called me up one day and says, hey, I just got some issues, and can I meet with you and just talk about our, my marriage and stuff? I said, yeah. So we, we arranged a time to, to come to get together, and, and uh, he came after work to met me at the church uh, at our old building where we were at, and... and uh, sat down and, and uh, was getting ready to start, you know, what's going on and talk. He goes, hey, before we do anything, I need to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I went, cool. <laughs> I said, that is so awesome. So I prayed with him right then and there to receive Christ as his Lord and Savior. I said, you know what? You did, that was awesome. I said, everything else is going to fall into place. 
you make that commitment, it's it's gonna yeah, yeah there's probably work that you need to do, but I'm glad you did this first because otherwise it's it's really not gonna do much good. And you know what? His he's doing great in his marriage and stuff. And it's just it was a blessing to see that. So my point in all this is that this is the foundation for the children of Israel for their for the first covenant. And it's a picture for you and I of our relationship with Jesus Christ. It has to start with you coming to faith in the Lord. You might go, you know what, you're preaching to the choir. Well, you know, I I yeah, maybe I am, but we had a men's retreat, oh, I don't know, a number of years ago, and it was with a couple different churches and that we were in fellowship with at the time. And, and uh, there was a guy that was on this other church's worship team, and he had been on the worship team, I don't know, for, for as long as I knew that he was there. And they had an altar call the, at the retreat, and here comes this guy, comes forward to receive Christ. And I thought, wait a minute. You mean he didn't have a relationship before? And here he's, he's going through all the motions. It happens. So even in a fellowship this size, I can't assume that everybody here has a personal relationship with the Lord. In fact, I won't assume that. I hope they do. I hope you do, but I can't assume that. And if you've been going through the motions of, you know, participating in communion, you know, maybe you're in ministry here in some, some aspect or something or, or whatever, you've you got to first have that foundation of Jesus Christ before you do anything else. And so uh, that's my prayer for us this morning. I'll have the worship team go ahead and come on up. And uh, what we're going to do at the end of the...